Strasse, despite a tight year for funding overall. Following these increasing reports of coronavirus spreading worldwide, a report from the Stanford Environmental Health and Safety has asked all community members who have returned traveling from China within the past 14 days to self-isolate, regardless of whether they show symptoms of the disease. If you're an employee, please first notify your supervisor and then call the Stanford University Occupational Health Center for an initial phone consultation appointment with a physician, the report said. If you're a student, please contact Vaden Health Center for a phone consultation. And we'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the virus. How are you feeling about it? How do you feel now that the first case has been reported in the Bay Area? Feel free to tweet us over at, at KZSU on Twitter. For the second year in a row, the Marriage Pact team has released a campus report that highlights trends in the data. Lead Marriage Pact content strategist Elizabeth Gerson said students can trust the data because one, respondents are motivated to answer the questions honestly because they're incentivized to find their best match. And two, the questions are also framed specifically to prevent participants from projecting an idealized version of themselves, she explained. And before I dive into this, for those who are unfamiliar with the Marriage Pact, it's essentially what started out as a student economics project for a market design class at Stanford, um, which takes a set of about 50 questions um, and using that matches you with your algorithm, algorithmically found optimal spouse um, from other respondents of the, of the um, quiz. So what Gerson said is that we went to keep it up with certain core values that we wanted to keep in the questionnaire based on as much psychologically reviewed information they could get their hands on. But the questions need to be enjoyable for people to answer as well. Now for the data that was released from this year's Marriage Pact. Approximately two-thirds of students do not think it's important for their children to be raised with religion. Nearly half of students expect their children to attend Ivy League tier schools. And also half uh, do not think it is important to make more money than their peers. 93% of students think that their spouse should be their best friend. And 77% disagree with the idea that gender roles exist for good reason. 63% of students want to be thought of as spontaneous. The, the report also captures how the data varies, whether that's over the years, across genders, or between different classes. Um, interesting trend. This year's report revealed the number of Republicans on campus has declined since 2017, and that the number of socialists has increased to almost surpass that of Republicans. Let us know what you think about those. Did, any, did you find any of those statistics surprising? Again, feel free to tweet us over at KZSU. We'll be reading your responses. Uh, we can see them live in the studio. Now for my last bit of news um, from on campus. Former U.S. Secretary of State, former provost, and lauded business and political science professor Condoleezza Rice will serve as the director of the Hoover Institution beginning in September 2020. Rice was a Stanford provost from 1993 to 1999, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and has been at Stanford since 1981. Um, I think one of her kids is in my friend's dorm. Anyway, <laughs> get back to you on that. Um... Rice wrote in a statement to The Daily, the country faces hard questions about how to provide greater opportunity for our fellow citizens, how to strengthen our democracy, how to protect the environment while continuing to grow the economy, and how to conceive of America's changing role in the world. The impact of technology weaves through all of these concerns, she added. Hoover is a policy research institution within one of America's best universities, and we reside in Silicon Valley. There's no better place to ask questions and seek answers and to try and make an impact. The Hoover Institution, a public policy think tank founded in 1919, seeks to improve the human condition by advancing ideas that promote economic opportunity and prosperity, while securing and safeguarding peace for America and all mankind, according to its website. That's all I have for campus news for this week. Uh, now back to you, Ken. Thank you, Rishon. Uh Back in a few minutes with Molly Irvin. 
Stay with us. Relatively Roundtable now is Molly Irvin. Of the class of 2020, one of the directors of the Mental Health and Wellness Coalition, which is the group in charge of Mental Health and Wellness Week. Thank you so much for coming in on Friday. Thank you for having me. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Sure, yes. Um, my name is Molly. I use she, her pronouns. I am a senior, and I do a few different things on campus. I'm very interested in mental health advocacy, and so I'm one of the three directors of the Mental Health and Wellness Coalition, as you mentioned. Um, I also do a lot of work for sexual health, and I'm a counselor and a teacher for Shipwreck, the Sexual Health Peer Resource Center. Uh, yeah, I'm a psychology major, English minor. That's pretty much it. And what was the, did that uh, background, ha- wh- what is your background, and it, it did that have any role in determining you know, your uh, experience in psychology and how you decided to uh, proceed with this mental health coalition? Yeah, I think um, when I was younger, I was in middle school and I was deciding what I was interested in. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, well, I really like science, but I also really like English and history. So psychology is the perfect in between. It's kind of a social science, the scientific method, but it's still fun and interesting and about about people so I got really academically interested in psychology and then like a lot of people I also was dealing with my own mental health issues and with things in my family as well and so being kind of academically interested and then also getting that um, getting that real life experience of being in the trenches of mental illness has really um, pushed me forward to do a lot of this work. Got it. What is Mental Health and Wellness Week and what are its overarching goals? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'll start with the coalition. So the Mental Health and Wellness Coalition is pretty much an umbrella group where all student groups and just interested individuals um, who are working on mental health, mental illness, or wellness on this campus can come together and collaborate. And so we really... We want to bring people together to keep each other updated on what's going on, um, to share institutional knowledge so that um, so that things can be more sustainable and more helpful for the student body, and then also to collaborate on bigger projects like Mental Health and Wellness Week. 
Um, and so, yeah, so our main goals for the week are to put on a ton of events that are both related to informing people about the truth of different mental illness, mental illnesses, mental disorders, but then also have a bunch of fun wellness activities so that people can take a break. Before we move on, could you maybe give a few details on who else is part of this coalition? Yeah, for sure. So my two other wonderful co-directors are Kane Za and Sophie Hearn, um, both also seniors. So we will be passing the torch in the spring. Um, and then we have, at any given time, a variety of different student groups, different interested individuals. Um, we're working to include a lot more graduate students this year. So generally, some of our main student groups are Stanford Mental Health Outreach, Students Supporting Body Positivity, Happiness Collective, We Continue, which is a suicide prevention group, um, Shipwreck, Cardinal Kink. So essentially, whoever is active and in the space at this time usually send someone to our coalition meeting so we can all have a bigger conversation. Can you give some example of some of the events from this week? Yeah, for sure. So every night for dinner this week, we've had a big panel and discussion where we've spent many weeks trying to select um, panels that are diverse in a lot of different ways. Um, and we have, so let's see, we had a body image um, and eating disorder panel yesterday um, with some eating disorder clinicians from around Stanford and um, the head of a podcast called She's All Fat. Um, we also had an event on gender roles and mental health. Um, we have all of the the fitness classes are free for this week or were free for this week. Um, just a bunch of different things. Some an event at Hume, the Writing Center, um, Zumba. We had, let's see. Yeah, we had two really cool shipwreck events. Um, Yeah, so we have kind of a lot going on. A very diverse, uh, from very different sorts of uh, fields, too. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at the schedule right now. You had uh, a tea gathering at Hume, yoga, even some, I think you had animals that you brought onto campus. Yeah, that's, oh, that's, actually, that's tomorrow. Yeah. yeah, stop by the petting zoo, Wilbur Field, 2.30 to 4.30. How did you decide uh, which of these events to include in this weekend? How did you bring them all together? How did you manage to bring them all together? Yeah, so we um, we started meeting with the planning team for Mental Health and Wellness Week at the beginning of fall. Um, And we just kind of sat down in a room and said, what is needed on this campus? What are things that we're hearing? What is misinformation that's going around? Um, And who are the professionals who are in or around campus who are, who have the information that people need? And so we kind of just, we have a, we had a team of like five, six people just thinking, this is what I've heard. This is what I know is needed. Um, And then we would come up with an idea and be like, okay, so we need a panel on, identity and wellness and then we'd be like okay who do we know who can do this and so people would be like oh maybe this person from this community center maybe this person from dgen and just kind of putting together pieces here and there is this in response to things that have been happening around campus um and 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 do you factor in the local the the campus happenings into these events uh every year that you do it Yeah, absolutely. So we really, since the coalition is not an official Stanford group, um, which is intentional, and so we have a ton of flexibility to really be whatever we feel like we need to be at any given time based on the needs of the student body. Um, 
so recently, like, for example, we, in one of our panels on PTSD and sexual assault survivors, we had a conversation about the Cleary Act emails um, that we've been getting a lot recently, and we had speakers from Sarah, CST, a PTSD specialist in the medical school, and just kind of talking about the impact of these emails on survivors of sexual assault or people with PTSD and how students can um, how students can support their friends when those emails come out. What are your thoughts on the state of mental health on campus and are there any specific ways where you try to engineer Mental Health Week to address some of these issues? I think there are a lot of wonderful things going on and there's also a lot more to be done on campus. I think it has been really inspiring to me um, over the past few years to see so many people come together to create change. Um, So many different groups, a lot of people, a lot of staff and faculty people who are really interested in making these changes and that's why um, that's what I think is so wonderful about the coalition is we just kind of bring all these people together. So Um, There's a lot of people that are really interested in making sustainable change. It's just about uniting them and making sure we can collaborate. Um, That being said, there are still a lot of holes. There are a lot of gaps in the system and a lot of people and a lot of groups that are whose needs are not being met. Um, And I think that we've tried to address some of those things during this week and just generally bringing people together. Um, We don't have all the answers of how to fix everything and we hope that by fostering these conversations and by bringing relevant people to the table from a lot of different backgrounds, that um, we can at least prioritize these issues. It fosters that environment of creativity and 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 support probably more. Mm-hmm. That's more important too, and then that's the goal with 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 having everybody together mm-hmm. in one place. All week, you and your team have been sending out emails to the community and you've been getting people excited. <laughs> what has been the community response at, at these events? Yeah, sorry for all the emails, everyone. We really need to publicize. It's a good thing. It's okay, a good, thing. good. After this week, none of my friends <laughs> are going to want to talk to me anymore. I've just sent too many emails. Um, it's for a good cause. Thank you. Yeah, the response has been really wonderful, I think, um, the events that we have had have gone really, really well. Um, they definitely vary in number. So some events we have like 30, 35 people all trying to have a discussion, which can be so awesome. And some events uh, tend to be smaller, more intimate discussions, which can be extremely fruitful as well. And I think, I mean, as a lot of the people on my team would say, it's just about you know, there's so many weeks of preparation, so many emails, so many logistics, so many emergencies that happen yeah. the week of. We had one speaker have the <laughs> flu, you know, everything that can happen will happen. Um, but just being in the room and having people share their stories or having people make connections with with support that they didn't know existed or, um, yeah, just as you said, being there um, and hearing the conversations that are happening and watching the change um, to be more open-minded and to be more communicative is something that I think is is really impactful. You have been organizing this for a number of years now, um, and this might is your loss, given that you're a yes. senior. Yes. Uh, what have you learned over the years from this experience? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> I think that I have learned a lot about connection and I mean that both in a in a deep 
um, interpersonal way, but I also mean in kind of like a networking sense. I think that it's almost impossible for advocacy to happen on this campus without every single person um, in a community or in a group really coming together and doing their part. And I think making those connections and being able to find the other people in different departments and different graduate schools who are also trying to do this work, making those connections can make can make initiatives far more far more diverse and just have a better impact on the community. You have a few months left here. What are your goals over these next couple of months? How do you wrap things up? If that's oh. a good way to put it. Whew. Let's see. Um, so one of the things that we are trying to do right now is just thinking about, you know, me and my two co-directors leaving at the end of this year. We, right. we, the three of us have developed kind of a huge canon of institutional knowledge, um, which people to talk to in this office, which people to talk to in this office, who should you not reach out to? What are the groups that are, that have money, that have funding, that can help support events? And I think that we want to make sure that we just don't take all that with us and graduate. Yeah. And so one of the things that we're working on right now, actually next week, we're having a big uh, community leaders and mental health meeting. And the idea here is really just to bring a bunch of student leaders, a bunch of faculty, a bunch of staff leaders on these issues who oftentimes don't really communicate with each other and just sit everyone down and say, explain who you are, explain what you do, what you're trying to do, the resources that you need. And then we can all, the goal is really to establish um, more sustainable patterns of communication going forward. Because like I mentioned, there's a lot of cool stuff and a lot of cool people on this campus who are working really hard, but uh, the connections are not always there. So I think that would be one of my main goals for the rest of the year is just to make sure that uh, when I leave and when other people leave and just generally as the university continues on that uh, people know how to come together and know the pathways and the resources um, to do kind of to do work like this. Thank you. In these final minutes, for those of us out there who want to help you out, those in the Stanford community, how can they, is there a way for them to reach out to you if they wanted to contribute to your effort? Oh, that's a great question as well. So um, the coalition is actually still relatively new. Um, it started about four and a half years ago. Um, and so there is a lot, there's still a lot of different directions that the coalition could go in and if people are interested in mental health advocacy on campus or just getting involved seeing which other groups they might want to join I know when I came here as a freshman I was like I know I want to do something but I don't exactly know what there seems to be a lot of different things going on um, if anyone is interested in coming by a meeting and getting involved with our initiatives right now um, we have an email address it's stanfordmhwco at gmail.com all right. You've just heard my conversation with Molly Irvin, one of the leading organizers of Mental Health and Wellness Week here at Stanford, and the final events are tomorrow. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. On Wednesday night, San Jose City Manager David Sykes, Deputy City Manager Kim Wallish, and Housing Director Jackie Morales-Ferrand convene in an Urban Studies Department panel discussion to talk about the housing crisis as well as the future of transportation in San Jose. Here is an excerpt from that conversation. 
I'm Kender, and you are listening to the Relatively Roundtable on KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. What is San Jose's growth plan for the future and our residents on board? Um, I guess I'll start a little bit. So Kim, Kim talked about our growth plan. It is, it is a focused growth in, in the downtown core and along the transit corridors because of the dynamic that Kim just talked about. We have to be committed to growing jobs, so to, to kind of combat that imbalance. But we're in the middle of a housing crisis, so we also have to be committed to building housing. Um, uh, for us, though, it needs to be a higher density level of housing for a multitude of reasons in terms of not just congestion relief, but because of the fact that a single family house does not gen enough, generate enough tax revenue to pay for the services that it receives from the city. So every single family house is actually a negative for us. Higher density housing generates enough, enough of a tax base to cover the, the, sort, uh, the services they receive. So it's, it's our, for our fiscal survival that we are committed to higher density housing um, as part of our, our growth plan. Our residents on board, not all of them. <laughs> so I think, you, you, you know, it's hard to broad brush it, but I think there are many in the community that are excited about this shift from suburban to urban environment. Um, and there's many in our community that are scared to hell of this shift of suburban to uh, urban environment. Um, and so, you know, that, I think, in my mind, San Jose does offer uh, the opportunity for this urban shift uh, along the, the growth areas that we've talked about. And, and there's obviously going to be a preservation of large single-family neighborhoods in our community. Um, I think all are going to see some shift as we continue to grow as a city. But none, nonetheless, there is a tension that we live in uh, as we try to, to um, grow as a city, but also um, serve our current residents in a way that's meaningful. The other part I would just add is our growth plan has a pretty radical goal embedded in it as it comes to how we're going to move around and within the city. So right now, more than 80% of the trips that residents take every week are single driver in an auto. And our general plan is by 2040 to cut that in half, so to cut that down to 40%. So that means that a lot more people need to use transit, need to bike, and need to walk. So this is where you start to see the connections between how you use your land, how you build out your transit, and where your housing and where your workplaces are located. You can also see that we've got a lot of work to do to build out a connected transit and mobility system. So we have a light rail system, uh, which is not really well used at the time because we haven't really densified along the light rail corridor. We're also in the process of connecting to BART. So by the end of this year, BART will come down the East Bay and it will arrive in San Jose at the Berryessa station but then we have to complete the work of taking it from Berryessa right into downtown San Jose, into Deardon Station. So people need to have the transit available to them, and they need to have a good experience using it. 
uh, and it needs to go places that they actually want to go. We're also taking biking really seriously. So we're building out a protected bike network that starts in downtown San Jose and then extends out to um, neighboring um, neighborhoods. Uh, and we're also taking seriously that we want people to walk more. So there's a lot of emphasis on uh, streetscapes and designs of sidewalks and walking for health uh, and to be social and just to, to get around and making that pleasant, safe, and a desirable experience, not just in the downtown, but in our neighborhoods. And just to, you know, just to emphasize this, our residents on board, so even with the, the Better Bikeways program that Kim described, if you've been to downtown recently and hadn't been there for a while, it looks very different than a few years ago uh, in terms of our commitment to the bikeway system um, and all the way from uh, removing traffic lanes and committing them to bike lanes and having buffered protected bike lanes. Um, obviously, it's a much stronger network to support biking, but a lot of our residents, you know, I'm not sure they're, you know, really feel like uh, we're prioritizing uh, our efforts properly when, when they're losing a traffic lane and we're committing it to a bike lane. Um, so, um, you know, not all residents are on board with everything we're doing for sure. If I can add though, I mean, we've very much become part of the complete streets movement and we really believe our streets are not just for cars and our cities should not be so oriented around cars. They should be oriented around people and people sometimes drive, but they sometimes bike, and they sometimes walk. And um, so we, we're trying to slowly help people think very differently that the public spaces should not just be for cars. But you can see that's deeply ingrained in our history, that auto orientation. All right, the next question is for Jackie. What has San Jose done? What is San Jose going to do to address housing inequality and displacement? Yeah, Jackie, what are... What, what do we do? Well, one of the tools that housing uses in order to look at income inequality and to also look at how you create diversity in your income stock and allow people of different incomes to actually live in the same places is through inclusionary housing and, and zoning, which basically says that when a new development goes forward in housing, a certain set aside of that housing has to be built as affordable. So in San Jose, we have a 15% requirement. Uh, we actually took, we were sued. It was the first thing I worked on when I came to the city of San Jose. I helped to pass uh, a citywide inclusionary ordinance and it, we were sued immediately um, after its passage. Um, so that was the sad part. The exciting part was that we won our case and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And so it really established the ability of cities to use their police powers, which are our zoning powers, in order to establish a requirement for affordable housing. Because the need for affordable housing in California is so great. The state had said the need is so great and cities are required and mandated to provide affordable housing. So the use of an inclusionary housing um, ordinance, which is one of the most popular tools in California, uh, and used mostly in California, but it is used across the country, does provide us an opportunity to have a full range of incomes live in one development. Um, so that's one of the things we do on the production side. Um, there was a, a group, and I happened to be part of it, that met a year ago called CASA. 
and it was a group of, there was a political tech, uh, political group, part of the group, uh, that had mayors uh, and city council members and boards of supervisors that were out of MTC, that were appointed by MTC, and then there was a technical committee of which I was part of. Um, that had a, a full range of stakeholders. So it had affordable housing people, it had developers, it had lenders, apartment people, fair housing people, and we all came together and we said, is there a way for us to come up with a framework on how we can begin to think about housing in the Bay Area? And the framework that came out of CASA was the three Bs. So as I'm thinking about these issues now, I'm continuing to use the three Bs. So the first P is production. If we're going to address housing and inequality, um, especially um, the inequality issue, we have to continue to produce more housing, especially on the affordable side. Um, and so again, one of our tools that we already have in San Jose is inclusionary housing. But we know that we need subsidies in order to produce more affordable housing. If the market could do it on its own, it would, but it can't. It needs a subsidy to reduce the, uh, the rent prices, and so we need more funding uh, in order to produce that housing. And so that's been one of the things we've been saying. The city council has a goal to produce 25,000 uh, new units in the city of San Jose, of which 10,000 of those need to be affordable. And when I took the calculator and I figured out how much money we had coming in today and in the next five years, we were $600,000, I mean $600 million short of meeting that goal. And so uh, we really need a new revenue source in order to continue to produce the affordable housing. Uh, our city council just recently uh, put on the ballot Measure E, which is a transfer tax on properties over $2 million, uh, that's both residential and commercial, uh, that could produce um, up to $50 million a year for affordable housing. And so uh, that would be a tremendous benefit uh, to us because, again, of the great need, and we can't produce the affordable housing without it. So we, need, we know we need more subsidies and, um, in order to produce the housing. Uh, the other thing that we've been working on is identifying land opportunities for our developers. Uh, one of the things we've already done is we allow affordable housing development to go forward before market rate development does. City of San Jose has urban villages, which is where we're pushing all of our growth towards, but we only open up a certain portion of those. Um, and for, if you're an affordable housing developer, you can go into any of those growth areas. You don't have to wait. And so there's an incentive or there's a, an opportunity that an affordable housing developer has that no other developers have. Um, when we look at protection, that's the second P. So how do we protect um, our residents that are already here, um, especially tenants? So we all know kind of the thing of homeowners are seen as these respected, you know, long-term committed people. But if you're a renter, of which I am, you're considered temporary, you may not stay. So you don't necessarily, when people talk about your rights to actually live in a place and your commitment to the community, sometimes isn't just even held in the same, uh, held, held in the same light. The city of San Jose had a long-standing um, 
rent program. Um, in many communities, it's called a rent control program. But I always called San Jose a rent stabilization program because when I got to San Jose, I've been with the city for 12 years, our rent control program was at 8%. You couldn't increase the rent more than 8%. And if you didn't increase the rent by 8% in one year, so in the second year, you could increase the tenant's rent by 21%. You know, from my perspective, that wasn't really much of a rent control uh, <laughs> ordinance, but it was an anti-gouging ordinance, right? So one of the things that in housing is that you have uh, spikes when uh, landlords are able to increase rents very dramatically when markets are changing. And so that kind of a program, San Jose's old program, really protected residents against these rent spikes. But it really didn't control rent. Um, so three years ago, uh, three or four years ago, the city council asked us to relook at our rent control program to see if we could strengthen it. And so we did. So we came back, um, we tried to get CPI, but we weren't able to do that. And so in San Jose, we have a 5% uh, rent increase. It makes it very simple. Um, so your landlord can't increase your rent more than 5%. But um, the companion legislation that we were able to pass at the same time is one that has always really excited me because rent control works best in partnership with a tenant protection uh, ordinance. And a tenant protection ordinance basically says in San Jose, um, you have to give a tenant a reason, and the city gives you 13 reasons on why you can evict a tenant. But the tenant can only be evicted if they violate one of these 13 tenants. Um, so it used to be if you lived in San Jose two years ago, if a landlord decided they just wanted to terminate your lease, so you could have been the perfect tenant, but a landlord had the power to say, I'm not going to rent to you anymore, and I'm going to give you 60 days notice, and you have to find a new place to live. When you're in a housing market such as San Jose, where the rents are so, um, where the rents are high, and the opportunities to find something in the rent stabilized program are limited. Um, if the new housing prices for a one bedroom, probably 700 square feet, are going for about $3,000 a month. I know that's low for Palo Alto, because you guys are <laughs> higher than us. Uh, but in San Jose, that's really high. Most people's mortgages are under $3,000 a month. Here. <laughs> um, um, and in the rent controlled market, our rents are about $1,500 a month. So you can see there's a huge difference. So if I have to leave that $1,500 a month apartment, what studies across the country have shown is that if I'm, it's very, very challenging to find something of equal value. And if you're evicted from your apartment, and, and not just terminated because the, the landlord decided not to rent you, but if you're evicted because you violate something in the lease, that is much harder to find somebody who's willing to take you when it's so difficult to find an apartment. So San Jose, uh, again, two years, implemented this tenant protection uh, ordinance, which is essentially called Just Cause in other communities. Um, but it is something that, for me, I'm personally very proud of because um, that the tenant protection ordinance protects anyone who's in a rental unit of three units or more. And I think that's really important because it gives people some sense of security that unless I violate these things, uh, the chances that I can stay in this apartment are much greater. Um, 
The other thing that we've been working on are neighborhood preferences and preferences for people who live in San Jose. Um, right now for affordable housing developments, uh, I think one that recently opened, they had 3,000 people apply for like 82 years. You have been listening to a panel discussion at our Urban Studies Department Wednesday night with San Jose City Manager David Sykes, Deputy City Manager Kim Wallish, and Housing Director Jackie Morales-Ferrand. Now to local news. Police in Palo Alto have arrested three male juveniles for robbing and physically assaulting a man walking in downtown Palo Alto Tuesday afternoon. At around 12.34 p.m., Palo Alto police received reports of a strong-armed robbery on Lytton Avenue near Tasso Street. A preliminary investigation found that a man in his 20s was walking eastbound on Lytton when one of the juvenile suspects tapped him on his back while another suspect grabbed the phone out of his hand. As the suspects ran away, the victim tackled the individual who stole his phone, and at that point, one of the suspects punched the victim in his face, and another demanded the victim's earbud headphones. The victim's co-worker was nearby and came to the victim's aid, and then the suspects fled on their bicycles south on Tasso Street. Approximately 40 minutes later, a police sergeant spotted three juveniles matching the description of the suspects and detained them in the 1400 block of Edgewood Drive. Officers located the victim's stolen phone in the backpack of one of the suspects and then returned the phone to his victim. Police arrested and booked the three suspects, all 15 years old, into the Santa Clara County Juvenile Hall for felony robbery. A developing story this afternoon, it has been reported that the Bay Area's first case of coronavirus has been confirmed. ABC7 News reports that the CDC has identified a white male resident in Santa Clara County has tested positive for the Chinese coronavirus. The individual has isolated himself following his return from a trip to Wuhan, China on January 24th. He has come into contact with very few individuals since his return and has not been hospitalized since he has not been very sick. County health officials say the individual will remain in self-quarantine at his home, and although they are investigating any individuals that the man has come into contact with, they say that the risk to the public remains low. In sports, the San Francisco 49ers play against the Kansas City Chiefs on Sunday in Miami for Super Bowl 54. This is the 49ers' seventh appearance in a Super Bowl, losing to the Baltimore Ravens in the most recent in 2012. Demi Lovato will sing the national anthem while Jennifer Lopez and Shakira will headline the halftime show. Kickoff is at 3.30 p.m. Sunday afternoon. Senate Republicans have rejected an effort to call for witnesses in the impeachment trial of President Donald Trump. The final vote was 49 to 51, with Republican Senators Mitt Romney of Utah and Susan Collins of Maine joining Senate Democrats in their push for witnesses, falling two senators short of the 51 majority needed. The vote is a win for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and it appears to pave the way for a Senate acquittal of the president. Stocks tumbling on Wall Street today on fears of the spread of coronavirus around the globe. The Dow following 603 points, which is over 2%, to close at 28,256. The Nasdaq falling by 148 points to 9150. And the S&P 500 seeing its worst day in four months. It's down 58 points to 3225. As for your weather, a warmer than average day as we saw a hint of spring this afternoon. 
Highs reaching the upper 60s to the low 70s across the Bay Area. Tonight, mostly clear skies with overnight lows in the 40s. You'll wake up to patchy fog tomorrow morning. It'll be a few degrees cooler as well, but still nice and mild for this time of year. But that changes Sunday as we see some major cooling. Temperatures falling anywhere from 5 to 15 degrees depending on your location, and we remain cool until at least midway through next week. By the way, we've seen some amazing sunsets these past couple weeks. Just simply stunning and a reminder of why I love the Bay Area. Live here, work here, play here. Coming up after the break, Alejandro Navarro joins us to talk about his new segment that the Relatively Round Table is debuting next week. By the way, a very happy Lunar New Year to you and... Today is the seventh day of the Year of the Rat. Happy Chinese New Year, uh, if you're Chinese like I am. Now, Alejandro Navarro, welcome back to the KZSU studio. Welcome into your first time into the studio. Thank you so much for having me, Ken. Uh, it's it's really it's really exciting being here. Um, I've always really liked radio, and like I've never been in the studio before, so I'm really just happy to be here. How have you been doing over the past couple of weeks since we've last seen each other? Uh, I've been doing really good, you know. Um, I've just been, I just graduated college a little while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been doing some community organizing with Sunrise Movement around climate justice. Oh, wow. And um, I've been doing a lot of thinking and listening to other people's work on like radio podcasting and sort of figuring out like how I'm going to structure my, my segment here coming up in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. What brings you to doing radio and what fosters your interest in, in radio and maybe the audio uh, uh, audio platform? That's a great question. So um, I've been a fan of radio probably since I was like age 12 or 13. Um, and it all started when um, I used to go over to my best friend's house a lot and his dad would listen to NPR all the time. Um, and so I really got into... Um, the I got into the news and like finding out what was going on in the world and that sort of led me into um, listening to a lot of the great like podcasting and interviewing that they were doing um, so shows like This American Life Snap Judgment um, all the big NPR ones the big <laughs> NPR ones yeah they, um, they really captured my attention and uh, I just sort of like developed a love for them like early on was there ever a specific moment when you were like, you know what, this is what I'd like to try? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would, ha- I would have to say, off of the top of my head, um, it came in the form of. It came in the form of when when the that really viral podcast came out called serial uh, if you remember yes. that one yes it was about um it was about this uh murder case mm-hmm. in, in maryland and um the reporter on that would like was just so captivating and I mean, the story was really sad but the yeah. the the storytelling on that was just so good that right. it really right. i think turned it up uh like a level for me and like um i think sort of helped move me along a path to like being like I want to do something related to storytelling and I think Serial too was one of the 
podcasts that really sort of reinvigorated, reinvigorated, or maybe even restarted the the podcasting business because it was just so famous. That was when a lot of people started listening to podcasts, and I guess you were one of the people who were captivated by this sort of new movement. I think you know I'm a re- very regular podcast listener. I actually, listen to Serial. Uh, it was one of my first podcasts that I listened to, but it I, I started uh, in January of last year. That's the only time I've been, I've uh, I've been listening to podcasts. So it's relatively late introduction, but I understand that appeal and just to you know be uh, a, a listener to these sorts of amazing storytelling. As you mentioned, it's just an awesome experience. And so the idea is that maybe some of us here. Uh, either in the studio right now or other people here at KZS, you have that similar sort of impact. Um, and I like to believe that we can work towards that impact by bringing quality people to engage in quality conversations. Yeah, that's 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 my dream. So we bring you on here today to discuss a new segment that we're debuting next week. Tell us a little bit about what you have in mind. Yeah, so um, next week I'm going to be joining the relatively round table team. Um, we'll make it new... more round than it normally is. <laughs> I love that rounder. Yeah, rounder, rounder table. round table. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what I'm hoping to bring to the show is a new interview segment um, that's based on community stories. It's going to be called uh, Community Narratives. And um, what it's really going to focus on is telling the stories of, you know, local people in Palo Alto, in Silicon Valley, really in the whole area, um, and telling their stories uh, in a way that ties back to like what's going on in the world, um, larger narratives that are happening in in the world. And um, just I really want the segment to sort of be a conversation with um you know, someone that you could live next door to and mm-hmm. you, you don't even know it. In, um, because I think that everyone has a really interesting story to tell. Um, and I think it's important to sort of like uplift those voices that don't get to um, be heard a lot. And so, um, yeah, I want to tell those stories uh, in a way that's like interesting and empowering to those people. You grew up in Palo Alto. How does that experience contribute to what you envision in this uh, segment? Yeah, that's a great question. So I grew up in Palo Alto and um, really I lived here for most of my life. Um, I went away to UC Santa Cruz for about five years and lived there. And then um, I came back right after. And so... Um, I think what that really contributes to my show is that, um, like, I just have a really good sense of, like, what the culture is like Mm -hmm. around here, um, how things have changed. Uh, I've gotten to, like, interact with a diverse range of people in this community. And um, I, I really want this to be, like, the show that I would have wanted to listen to as a kid yeah, essentially yeah. um i think in silicon valley a lot of times like we are um on our phones we are like in netflix we are 
not really talking to each other um and there's like interesting things that are maybe happening like near us um that we don't really hear about so i want um my show to be a chance to explore that um and maybe um get people thinking about what's happening here instead of what's happening on twitter or something yeah no i totally agree um do you have anybody specifically in mind or or if you don't yet do you have an idea of maybe who you might want to target or who you think would be a very interesting person to talk to yeah so um i don't i don't think i'm exactly ready to like put a list of names and also by the nature of this show um not like most people i'm interviewing aren't already famous and like wouldn't be recognized by the listenership before i put them on podcast but i will say that um a lot of the people that i have planned to interview um are at least at first are people that i've had these sort of conversations with and have thought to myself like oh that would be really good to um sort of turn into podcast form or to mm. explore deeper um and so i'll say a lot of them would be um members of like the community that i grew up in or um friends of mine or people who um i've been involved in like different spaces with um and i want the show to really focus on um I want the show to really focus on like um people who are activists, people who are artists, people who are active in the community um and like do um sort of make this place run like do things in the yeah. shadows essentially. Yeah. Spotlighting the individuals who make Palo Alto and maybe our community what it is and maybe highlighting their contributions and helping other people understand why they might make this place a better place to be is that would that would you agree that that is your your vision yeah that's i think that's a great way to put it <laughs> you're coming back to palo alto uh after a few years away at college has it changed in any way noticeably yeah so yes i it has changed very noticeably um and this is something that I often like tell people when I'm that tell people about when I'm like traveling out of town or um, told people like in Santa Cruz about. Um, I would say that just about every year that I came back from college, there were significant changes in the makeup of this town. Um, a lot more um, luxury housing has been built over the years. Uh, up and down El Camino, there are all kinds of um, neighborhood stores and markets and things that have become banks now. Um, and it's just really, you know, whether whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, it's, it's really clear how um, the influence of like big money and capital and also um, like the tech industry has actually changed like how this place looks on the ground. And you have actually you've seen it all from the beginnings of Silicon Valley to what it is now 
I think, because it was, you had the dot-com boom before the 2000, and then now you have this huge region that's attracting so many skilled people. Of course, we have our, our issues with transportation and housing, and maybe we will have the opportunity to delve into those some of those very pertinent issues to the issue that really have an impact on what makes the Bay Area and what makes Silicon Valley the place it is and and then the place to and then you know what our role is what Stanford's role is what Palo Alto's role is and maybe seeing if we can find a narrative around that alrighty well uh, really look forward to seeing what you bring Alejandro and I'm just so happy to have you on the team thank you so much for the interview thank you and we look forward to hearing more from you in the weeks ahead that's it for us this week. Thank you for taking a seat with us at the Relatively Roundtable. As always, you can find a full recording of this show and past shows on our Twitter page at Relatively Round. You can find the Stanford Daily at stanforddaily.com. I'm Ken Durr, and on behalf of Ishan Gandhi, Alejandro Navarro, Darling Franklin, who was away today, and our good friends at the Stanford Daily, have a great weekend.